This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, welcome to the Resolution Foundation. My name is David Willits, President of the Foundation. We're going to focus on people-powered growth today. Uh, and we, uh, even for a think tank as busy and productive as the Resolution Foundation, producing three papers in one day is quite a record. And uh, we're very proud. I can say that two of the papers are excellent. The third was written by me, so I better not comment. <laughs> but the, uh, it is a, a very lively set of papers. And I think there's a lot of complementarity between them different angles, uh, different um, lines of approach, but I think tying together in a very powerful, coherent whole, which is in turn going to inform the work we are doing at Resolution in our economic inquiry leading to our report, which will be published early in December. We have got a fantastic group of uh, panellists with us this morning. We're first going to hear from Richard Layard, who is officially described as co-director of the Community Wellbeing Programme at the Centre for Economic Performance. Uh, but I also think of Richard as an extraordinary figure of kind of historical continuity uh, in education policy because he began as senior researcher to the original Robbins report. So when Richard uh, talks about the Robbins principle, he has uh, unique authority in interpreting it because he was actually involved in the publication of that document, the preparation of that document published exactly 60 years ago. Um, we're then going to hear from uh, Gugu Ventura, who has helped uh, write, who is, a who is a research economist at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE, who are our partners in our wider economic inquiry, and he will also give a presentation, and then I'll introduce them in a moment. We'll then have comments from Professor Sandra McNally and from Dr. Diana Beach. But to start, Richard, you have produced a powerful report on applying the Robbins principle. <coughs> Um, well, this first uh, report is about the problem of the low skill level of the half our population who don't go to university, uh, which is actually one of our largest national problems. And I think everybody agrees that it is a major contributor to, first, our low national productivity, uh, second, uh, our low level of wages in substantial sections of the population, and thirdly, our low level of social mobility, uh, up and down. <clears throat> so uh, it's really important to know what is causing this and then what we can do about it. Um, so what is causing it? Uh, and I'm talking about our comparatively low level of skill compared with, say, France and Germany. Uh, it's not our schools. Uh, the PISA studies uh, run by the OECD, show clearly uh, that our children perform at least as well or even better than those in France and Germany at age 15. But the striking thing is that by age 25, the international surveys of numeracy and literacy show that we have a much longer uh, low tail of low literacy 
and low numeracy. So something has gone wrong after people leave school. And uh, it's actually rather simple to describe what's gone wrong, which is that we stopped educating a lot of them. So uh, here's the fact that I would most like you to remember from this talk, which I failed to put on the slide. <laughs> so I'm going to repeat it twice. Uh, a third of our young people have no further education or training beyond the age of 17. Uh, and that's half as many more uh, as in France and Germany. To put it slightly more accurately, by age 18, a third of our young people are not in any form of education and training, which is actually, when you think about it, pretty shocking. So what's the cause of that? And it's rather simple to say, it's rationing the number of places down that route for people not going to university is rationed. By contrast, if you go down the academic route, uh, the Robbins principle that David <laughs> kindly introduced um, is the dominant uh, uh, principle for the provision of places. So here's the Robbins principle that qualified applicants should expect to be able to find a place uh, at the next uh, level up. And that's why we have a very effective system of academic education. Children in school know what uh, the opportunities are going to be. If they qualify, uh, they'll be able to go on. Uh, and, and that principle has been applied by and large by governments uh, for the last 60 years to the academic route. But for the other 50%, there's no such principle. Uh, there is rationing. Uh, so in further education, uh, the uh, budget is set by the Treasury uh, and then replicated by the department to each college. And the budget is now, uh, in real terms, one half of what it was uh, in 2010. So that's the red uh, uh, area uh, uh, in, in that graph. Similarly, for apprenticeships, the number of places has fallen by a third since the peak uh, and by even more than that for young people who are the bottom uh, two uh, sections of those uh, uh, graphs. Um, and the result is, is quite simple. If you look at the government's matching system, which ma matches vacancies to um, uh, people seeking apprenticeships, there are three times as many people registering with that matching service as vacancies that are being provided by employers. I mean, that is rationing. And so the result uh, is that we have large numbers of people unskilled, which of course means that their, their wages uh, get driven down. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a plus side of that. <laughs> the corollary of that is that if they move up, the rate of return is high. So I'm going to show you the rate of return to uh, level three education, which is level to the <coughs> equivalent to the, the A-level um, level of achievement, but down the technical route. Uh, I'm sorry that's so small, but I'll, I'll tell you the, uh, the right-hand column. Uh, that shows you that 
Uh, a level three apprenticeship raises your wages 13% above the next level down, and your employment rate by three percentage points, which is a lot, really important in the terms of the government's objectives to raise the level of employment. So that the department calculate that because this is going on over a long period of time, uh, the benefits are seven times the costs um, of providing level three apprenticeship, provided the apprenticeship starts before the age of 25. So the top educational objective in this area uh, has got to be to get more people up to level three. I would say actually it should be the top educational objective period, um, but that's got to be uh, what we're aiming at. And to do that, we must apply the Robbins principle uh, to the other 50%. And I'd just like to make clear why it's the job of the state in this area, as it is in the university area, um, to uh, provide this kind of support. We can't rely on employers, and that's always been at the back of people's minds. Surely employers should be doing this. Nobody ever said that about lawyers or engineers, but surely the employers should be doing this. But the problem is that their trainees leave, uh, and it's in their collective interest, but it's not in their individual interest. Therefore, the state has to step in. <clears throat> so uh, let's come on to, finally, the practicalities of what needs to be done <clears throat> to apply the Robbins principle uh, to all uh, the, the people who don't go to university. First, further education has to have demand-led funding, which would dynamise it um, as uh, David Willis dynamised the universities um, by uh, having demand-led funding for universities. And for apprenticeships, uh, the government should be under an obligation to guarantee that every qualified applicant can find a place. Uh, that is, in my view, uh, the most important education reform that's needed uh, if only we could get it into every party's manifesto. Now, it was put into law in 2009 in the Apprenticeship Act, but it was then repealed in 2011. And to implement it would require three things. Uh, first, the apprenticeship levy uh, should be mainly refocused on young people working for levels two and three apprenticeships. Second, non-levy paying firms uh, should receive demand-led funding uh, from the department uh, for their apprenticeships. But thirdly, there has to be an effort to drum up places. And it's got to be clear who is leading that, and it's got to be the local governments. And they want to do it. Uh, so that should be the arm of government, which is responsible for, ex uh, for <coughs> implementing uh, this legal commitment um, <coughs> to guarantee apprenticeships. This will take time. I think it would take at least five years to put this in place. But we should be thinking long-term about this problem. We've had too much tinkering and short-term changes, and we've been failing uh, the other 50% for too long. So they too deserve the opportunities which the Robbins Principle would provide. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. 
Uh, just a couple of practical points I, I should have mentioned. Of course, for our participants online, do go to Slido the, uh, and put down your questions uh, on our Slido page on our website. This is, of course, also um, being broadcast live on YouTube and recorded. Someone has already asked me if there's a recording available. Yes, there is. Um, and we do need for the Slido questions, the screen down here at, in front of me, to be functioning. So we're going to get that working in time for our poll, as we hope. Now, let's turn to uh, Gu Gu Ventura, who is research economist at the Centre for Economic Performance and <coughs> is a key author of Learning to Grow, How to Situate a Skill Strategy in an Economic Strategy. Over to you. Thank you. <coughs> Have you got the oh, sorry. No. So it's, it's, it's that one. Uh. The down button. Right. <coughs> Thank you. So let me talk about a bit about this report. Uh, so the main purpose of this report is to develop a skill strategy to complement the broader economic strategy that we advocate as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry, with its twin objectives of boosting economic growth and reducing economic inequality in the UK over the next years. So as part of this uh, inquiry, we identified some sectors that we believe can play a strategic role in bringing growth to the UK. These are areas where the UK has a long-standing competitive advantage and where global trade is set to increase over the next years. In particular, we focus here on three strategic sectors, the financial business services, the creative and cultural sectors, and the life sciences industries. So these three sectors as a whole already employ one in f nearly one in five workers in the UK and are spread all across the country. The UK also faces the challenge of decarbonizing its economy in line with the uh, net zero commitment. And in my experience, a new wave of automation and digitalization as businesses adopt new generative AI technologies at scale. So in this report, we ask how are these changes and strategic transformation we are arguing for going to impact the demand for skills? and which policies we need to be put in place to make sure that skill supply keeps up with these changes in demand. But before answering these questions, I want to convince you that expansion of the strategic sectors can create opportunities for more good jobs for workers regardless of the skill level. As you can see in this chart with the light green bars, in the strategic sectors, wages are higher than in the rest of the economy for all levels of education. In the report, we show that not only wages are higher in the sectors, but the workers employed in the sector actually enjoy stronger wage growth throughout their careers. And this is especially the case for lower educated workers. However, if you want to see an expansion of these sectors, we want to see more good jobs being created, we need to make sure that we have the right mix of skills in place. And this means a higher proportion of people educated at tertiary level. Why is that the case? As you can see in this chart, again with the light green bars. The strategic sector is higher, workers in the strategic sectors are higher educated than in other sectors. Nearly two-thirds of the workforce in the sector has a university degrees, which is much higher than in the rest of the economy. And this is explained by the skill requirements that we find in these sectors. So in the report, we look in great detail at what are the work requirements associated to the occupations that are most prevalent in the sectors. We look at job ads to see what are the skills that employers are demanding in the sectors in the, over the last years. And what we consistently find is that analytical skills, such as uh, problem solving, data interpretation, 
creative thinking, they are becoming increasingly important in this sector, even more than in the rest of the, uh, of the economy. But then, so if we see that uh, these sectors have higher skill requirements and uh, are also met by higher education attainment, what is to be worried about? Why do we need a skills policy in the first place if demand and supply seems to be balancing? Well, in the rest of the analysis in the report, we showed there's actually a large gap in the middle of the education requirement distribution with a lack of workers educated at sub-degree level. Um, so as you can see in this chart, here we are plotting the gap between the required level of education, which is measured using a US-based taxonomy, and the actual level of education held by workers in the sectors. So here on the left, you can see with the dark green bars that we have too many workers educated at level three, if not below. <coughs> and here in the middle, we have too few that have a qualification at level four or five. In fact, we should see up to three times more workers with level four and five qualification in this sector if we are to balance the uh, required skills. Um, so this means that we need to improve provision at sub-degree level, creating more opportunities for people to progress uh, beyond level three. But that, that's not all. There's yet more signs that we need more skill investment in this sector. So we also find a large wage premium associated to having a university degree, which has stayed remarkably uh, stable over time as university participation has expanded, at least at national level. And uh, this premium is even higher in the strategic sectors. Uh, the second, and so this sort of convinces us that some of the arguments we often hear about trying to dissuade students from going to university might be misplaced. If we want to see these sectors expanding, then we need to see more and not less people going to university and taking um, tertiary qualifications. Uh, second issues related to the fall in participation in workplace training. We have long known about this, but we actually find that this is more salient in the strategic sectors. And we think this, is, this has to do with the type of skills that are becoming more important as firms, um, as we just was remarking, as firms you know, we are discouraged from in investing what are considered like generic skills. At the same time as individuals, because of financial time constraints, uh, are discouraged to invest in training themselves. So this is clearly a case for the government to step in and provide some intense incentives for both firms and um, individuals. And this brings me to our policy recommendations that I'm going to summarize for you here. We have much more to say in the report, as you can imagine, and hopefully in the discussion. Um, so the priority is to make sure that we have more people, that the new generations of workers joining the workforce are better educated than in the past. This requires sustained investment at all levels of education. We need to reverse the education spending cuts, which have seen the level of investment in education falling at the same time as participation was increasing, and at the same time as uh, demand for skill is increasing, as you have seen. We also need to address more specifically the real term fall in the financial resources available for all education institutions, including HE, which have suffered from the uh, sort of freeze in the, uh, in the uh, uh, student fees. But we also crucially need more financial support for students, especially at this time as the cost of living crisis has eroded the uh, support available for them. As I mentioned, we need to enable greater provision at sub-degree level 
This means a richer and better integrated offer of qualification at level four and five. We don't think we need to see these qualifications across all areas of the economy. We clearly see more benefits in some sectors rather than in others. But also having more of this qualification will not be enough if the take up uh, does not increase. So we have make sure that uh, we make available uh, more information to both students and employers about what is the value of this qualification. We really need to make sure that employers and students understand uh, what these qualifications are for. And finally, we also need to make sure that we keep investing on workers throughout their working life. And here we have two suggestions. Again, there's more, we're going more detail into the report. We would like to see a human capital tax credit mirroring the research and development tax credit, which is av already available for firms investing um, innovations. And we also think we should see individual learning accounts avail made available for workers for them to invest mm -hmm. in training. Of course, given you know, the high chances of like dead weight losses with this intervention and also maybe some of the failures that we have seen in the past, we really need to get the implementation of these policies right. So we suggest that this intervention should be first be trialed in some sectors where the uh, demand might be higher, and we should really make sure to evaluate this intervention again to make to um, to <coughs> make sure that uh, we get these policies right because we don't want to. Um, we think that they are critical for in increasing uh, investment, and yeah, that's that. That was it for me, so thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Dean, uh, thank you. Um, we're now going to hear from Professor Sandra McNally, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Surrey. Uh, she's also Director of the Centre for Vocational Education Research at the London School of Economics. And I must say, almost every serious economic appraisal of returns to uh, vocational education or, or apprenticeships <laughs> has Sandra as one of its co-authors. And our paper today is no exception. Sandra has contributed to that. So over to you, Sandra. Thank you very much, David. Um, it's great to have three reports out today um, on um, different parts of the uh, education system. So we've got one on David's uh, higher education, which we haven't heard about yet, but I'm sure we will. Um, we've, uh, you know, the report that Gu and myself have been in, led by Richard on further education and apprenticeships. And then we've got the report that Gu has just shared now, uh, which tries to bring the demand side in and look at the skill requirements through that in particular. It, if we want, and the idea is with Economy 2030, we're trying to see, well, how can the economy really grow? And in previous reports that have identified particular sectors that, well, if, if, if the economy is going to grow, these sectors are probably going to be particularly important. And that's what inspired us to think about, um, well, if those sectors are gonna be really important, what are the skill requirements at the moment in those sectors? What are the education requirements at the moment in the sector? And therefore, what does it imply about what we need in the future? Um, and that, that's the context in which we, we looked at that. So I suppose the point about having three reports on this is that um, it's not, we're not saying that education would be nice to have if you can afford it, more of it. We're saying that it's actually fundamental to have for, for economic growth. If we want to get out of this painful period in which productivity is extremely low and we want to have more shared prosperity, then we need to invest in, uh, in, in workers. We need to invest in students and then we need to invest in workers as well. 
So ideally what you want people <coughs> leaving with education with is you can't exactly predict the skills that are required in the future. We said a lot in the report about what skills are required and we can say a certain amount. But we can't predict exactly how things are going to change, particularly with things like generative AI. But what we do know is that people need to leave with good quality general transferable skills. So they need to leave the education um, and enter the labour market with those sorts of skills. Uh, partly to facilitate their own retraining and reskilling later on, because it's very hard to do retraining and reskilling later on if you don't get the fundamentals uh, when you're young. Um, so that's, that's part of the reason why we, we do talk about retraining and reskilling, but we put an awful lot of emphasis on what the education system should be doing in the first place and say that's particularly important. Um, the reports point to many problems. They're very big reports, and there's a lot in them, more than we can summarise at this event. Um, but if I had to say, trying to pin down, well, what, what, what are you, what's the main thing? What, what's the real problem? It's, it's that too many people have low-level skills and education. Um, and now Richard was pointing out that a lot of people don't even get to level three, that they don't even get a good upper, upper secondary uh, education. And, and many people don't stop at that. They stop at upper secondary education and even though the Prime Minister was saying that, you know, that's not even good enough. It doesn't have the breadth that upper secondary education has in other countries. And many people just stop there and they don't do anything else. So why is this? Why, why do people, so many people stop? Well, there's a huge gap between level three, upper secondary, and then the next thing up. The next thing up that most people know about is university degrees. But there's a huge difference between doing two years after GCSEs and doing a three-year full-time undergraduate degree. There's lots of people who, who just aren't able for that, don't want to do that, uh, and yet there isn't that much available for them. Um, I mean, how many people do you know who say, oh, there's a very good uh, higher education diploma or, or certificate that I can get um, in, my, in, in my college or in my university? Uh, I don't know anyone like that. I wouldn't know what level four, level five qualifications meant at all if I didn't actually work in this area. And that's because there are so few people who actually do them, so it's not surprising. And the other, other, so there isn't any much level four, level five provision in this country relative to other countries. And there aren't enough apprenticeships, as, as Richard has argued. Um, they, the apprenticeships we do have seem to be taken up more and more by older workers, and that seems to be something to do with how the levy operates. Um, and yet, you know, what Richard talks about, about the Robbins principle, is not something that... Um, unique to this country. Other countries are thinking of this sort of thing as well. Um, so I, I was in Germany last week for a visit and actually this came up in conversation with, with somebody in the Federal Employment Agency that they're actually going to do something that sounds very similar to that in Germany. And of course they're starting off from a much better place than we are. Um, apparently Austria have already something like that um, at the moment. Um, so we should be aspiring to having a, a guarantee, a proper offer for all uh, young people, all, all young people. Um, so, you know, how do we fix this? Um, we need to, it implies more, uh, actually more resources, of course. I mean, you, you've got to invest in things. If you want to have a return on investment, you actually have to, to put the funding in and you have to, I think, anticipate that that requirement is going to increase. But the idea is that you invest in something to get a return later on. So it's not money down the drain. It's, it's actually to get a return. That's why we're doing it and we shouldn't forget why we're actually doing it. And then the other thing 
um, that we really need to think about is how we use the funds we actually put into to the public system that, that's actually subsidised. So is the levy really being used in the right way? Uh, we would argue in the report more of the levy should be ring-fenced um, for young people to facilitate um, the, the application <coughs> of the Robbins principle um, in, in, in apprenticeships. Um, you really need to ring-fence that. Um, and the reason why more isn't available for, for young people is partly because a lot of it's spent on degree apprenticeships, which are very expensive. Um, so uh, David's report argues um, that degree apprenticeships should be treated more like other kinds of degrees. So you just take out loans, fees and loans, like other kinds of degrees. Um, and, and I think that's that's an extremely good idea, and I'm not sure why it's not done already. Um, we still, you can powerfully advocate for degree apprenticeships while saying that they shouldn't be funded in quite the same way as other kinds of apprenticeships should be. And then um, our, our report that Gu talked about um, argues a lot for, um, and David's report too, also argues for um, more level four and level five qualifications. Now, obviously you need that in some areas more than in others. Um, and this needs to be integrated properly with what goes before, level three, and what comes later. You need to know what, what's going to happen later. How is this going to affect your whole career? Not just about the job you get after tertiary education, but your whole career. That's, that's the point. Why would anybody go into any of these qualifications if they didn't have confidence it would help them through their career? Um, so we can say some good things about policy in this area. Um, thanks a lot to the Auger Review and the response to that that the, uh, the learning loan entitlement um, is coming into place and uh, new higher technical uh, qualifications as well. Um, and I think um, all of that's to be really welcomed. Um, but the question is, is that enough on its own? Um, so I think that we, we don't know. We, that, that's just, uh, nobody can really be sure about that. I think there are things that we can question. We can question the detail, exactly what's going to be funded by it whether four years is going to be long enough, uh, whether module, uh, mod modular provision is, is realistic and in what context it's realistic and what context it isn't really realistic. I couldn't imagine doing it, uh, for example, at economics at Surrey. I don't think it would work well there, mm. but it probably work well in other areas. Um, and one of the ideas um, that David has in his paper, and um, hopefully he can talk a bit more about it, um, is how you stimulate uh, level four, level five provision in the first place. And because putting on these courses obviously requires facilities, it requires teachers, and there's a, a lot of upfront investment required to do that. Uh, so how do you do that? Um, and he's suggesting uh, funding pots that um, further education and higher education providers would actually bid for um, together. And then just final thing I want to say um, is in terms of what needs to be fixed, and Gu mentioned this in his presentation, um, really, for a long time, we talked about higher education being, um, you know, rel relatively well looked after in, in the education system. But the, the fee freeze is really starting to bite um, now um, with the universities, just um, the cost going up and the income staying the same. And that really is a problem. You can't expand tertiary education and expect to not do something about that. You have to do something about that. And from the student's point of view, uh, the, the loans that they can get aren't sufficient to cover maintenance. And again, that's just not sustainable. Students aren't coming to classes, which is a big problem in uh, higher education. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that some of that, at least, is to do with uh, people having jobs and trying to, uh, trying to make ends meet at the same time, which is really counterproductive if you want people to be there learning and then going to uh, be, be useful and productive people in the labour market. So 
I suppose a lot of what we say is it's partly about increasing the volume of investment and also thinking about how we actually uh, use the investment we have and, and we're saying that's very important and the reason is that there's going to be a big economic and social return on that investment um, if we use it in the right way. <coughs> very good. Thank you so much. And now we're going to hear from Diana Beach, who is Director of London Higher, and before that worked at the Higher Education Policy Institute and was policy advisor to successive ministers of universities and science. Diana, yes, over indeed. to you. Thank you, David, and uh, thanks for inviting me here to uh, sit on this panel today. I have to say, I'm feeling a little bit inadequate, having not been involved in any of the reports, so I am in <laughs> awe. Um, but I You're hope... the independent external <laughs> assessor, Diana. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, no pressure. <laughs> I hope I can bring it to life a little bit with a perspective from higher education in London. Um, and I'd like to start this morning by picking up on the 2030 theme, because as well as being the main focus of this inquiry, it does also mark a significant milestone for English higher education, because, shameless plug here, but if a previous report that I once wrote, while at HEPI, thank you for mentioning it, David, is to come true, then it will mark a peak in demand for England's universities. And this is because, two reasons, England's 18 year year old population is going rapidly upwards and current rates of progression into higher education are showing no signs of abating. So by 2030, um, the higher education sector in England is going to need 365,000 full-time undergraduate places just to um, accommodate this domestic demand, and I stress domestic demand only. Um, and what's more, the bulk of these places, 40% of them in fact, are actually going to be needed here in London and the South East. Now, as you've heard, as luck would have it, that's also my day job. It's a part of the country that I have the pleasure of representing in my role as Chief Exec at London Hire, and it's a position in which I get to work with 50 universities and higher education colleges across the London region, with a current combined student population of well over half a million, 507,000 in fact. And I think it goes without saying that our members are extremely diverse. They range from small specialist conservatoires and postgraduate research institutes with a couple of hundred students each, right the way through to large multi-faculty universities with 40 or 50,000 students each. And however you want to divvy them up, whether it's by disciplinary specialism, by institutional age or type, or indeed by their research and teaching profile, I always like to say that there's a London institution not just for every type of London student, but also servicing every type of London industry. Because different institutions, um, some of them are powering our public services with the skills and talent they need, some of the creative industries, as mentioned by Gu earlier, and others private sector, business and enterprise. Now, I hold my hands up. As a region, London does really quite well with getting people into higher education because the progression rate in the capital is higher than any other part of England. But that doesn't mean that London isn't without its challenges because London's student population is also the most hyper-diverse in the country. Uh, and a report that we published a few years ago um, at our Access HE division in London Higher showed that by 2030, roughly three quarters of entrance to higher education um, from London, going to higher education in London, are set to be from non-white backgrounds 
and also from free school meal backgrounds. That's three quarters. Um, and I think this not only reinforces the transformative power um, of higher education, but the life-changing opportunities that, it, that going to university or going to tertiary education can really bring to these young people's lives. And it's for that reason that I can only echo the call in, in your report, David, um, to focus on getting more people into training when they are young and informing them of, of the full suite of options that they have available to them before they become yet another statistic um, with lower wages and limited progression possibilities. And I think it's really not a coincidence that 17 of the top 20 universities for social mobility in England are London universities, um, because they really are at the coalface, um, taking people from the most disadvantaged parts of society and providing them with the skills um, to enter well-paid and meaningful careers. And I should just should stress as well, that's not just at the undergraduate level, that's also at so-called level four and level five, needs a bit of explaining, but they're there. Um, and also via innovative partnerships and pathways with further education colleges. I'm looking at London South Bank <coughs> University, got a great example with its technical college at the moment, and also institutes of technology. London is lucky to have three of them. Um, for example, Queen Mary and Newham College, working in the Newham area, there's an East London, a West London and the City of London, so we're really lucky here. Um, and, and the local schools um, and skills improvement plan for London, there's been 28 of them across the country, produced by the DfE, actually shows that high-level skills are almost essential for success in the capital's labour market because London's economy is the highly, most highly skilled economy, uh, regional economy in the UK, and London's businesses are actually screaming for the talent um, to power their industries. In fact, there's some recent research by Universities UK, which represents the UK university sector, um, looking at the value of going to university. And it found that almost eight in 10 business leaders in Greater London believe that going to university enables graduates to get transferable skills, but also serve as a, an essential training ground for their industries. 83% um, of graduates in Greater London also say that the support they received at university helped them to get their work and a staggering 97% of London business leaders revealed that graduates reach managerial positions faster purely as a result of the fact that they went to university. So you can automatically see from that survey alone how higher education is seen as giving individuals a boost within the local London labour market and that any interventions from policymakers to try and siphon people away from achieving higher level tertiary qualifications is just not going to cut it. It's not going to meet what employers want and what they need in the London region. Yet, um, while the capital is lucky enough to have more high-level skills than most, I'm not saying that there's not much more that, that can be done in the matchmaking piece on signposting and matching people to appropriate roles in shortage areas. And um, that's why I'm going to pick up on Goo's report now at London Hire. We're actually part of two separate skills initiatives, which is aimed at better matching the highly skilled talent that's emerging from London's higher education sector to shortage occupations specifically for us in the creative industries and the film and TV industry in particular. That's been highlighted as one of the Mayor of London's shortage um, industries here in the capital. Um, and these industries, they don't just need uh, traditional creative talent, as we might think of it. And of course, there's a lot coming through from a third of our members are small special specialist creative in London. but. There's a whole host of other roles that make the creative economy tick. Think accountants, think lawyers, technicians, engineers. So solving these skills conundrum in these areas is as much about opening up people's eyes to opportunities that they might not otherwise know exist in other sectors and industries. Lawyers don't have to go and work in the city. They can go and work in the film industry. Um, but as it is providing them with the high-level skills in the first place. So I think we've got to, to, got to fight on two fronts there. It's the provision of skills and then the matchmaking piece. 
Now, of course, London is just one region, and in many ways it's a very special region, um, but because of the major role that I think high-level skills and tertiary education does play in this region, I think that we could do a lot worse <coughs> than to look to London um, to help shape a skills and economic strategy that is fit for the future in the country. So I do look forward to hearing um, what questions you've got and where the discussion takes us. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's an ingenious pitch for, for London, which is indeed a place where there's a lot of innovation and a lot of success in promoting access. Um, we've, we've got some questions coming in. I'm just going to make some very brief observations on what we've already heard. I think that, and I'm going to try to make them optimistic. Uh, and there are, I think, some, some deep reasons for being optimistic. The first is the demographics, which you just heard about from Diana and the environment in which, because of the increase in the birth rate of the first decade, uh, we're going to go from, with an extra, by the end, we're going to have an extra 150,000 young people per age quarter, per year cohort, than we had at the low point of the birth rate in 2002. I think that is an opportunity. It's much better to do innovation and change when you're in a growth environment than when you are. Face, uh, facing shrinkage. And even with no change of policy, as we've heard, we've got more young people coming through. That's an environment in which there's an opportunity to create new institutions, to grow institutions, um, and not be passive, and not imagine there's some kind of scope for stopping all these people going on into education and training. They're going to want it. And I personally think, although we've just heard an eloquent case for London, and one way you can do this is identify the cold spots, which don't currently have a higher education institute is the more that you can do there to promote FE colleges, perhaps on a journey to becoming a higher education institution. Can you, uh, and is that a place where you can allocate <coughs> some funding, competition, for innovation, innovative funding of extending or new higher education institutions? And you could perfectly reasonably say with a particular focus on levels four and five. So the, the demographics is a favorable backdrop. Um, the second favourable factor is despite all the um, imperfections and mistakes in policy, and I'm aware of my own, we have ended up with two functioning funding streams. We have now got an apprenticeship levy, which we should remember did not exist five years ago, and we've got fees and loans which have been around in some form for 20 years, but now bringing more cash into higher education than ever before. The, both of those, I think, are stable features of the environment. We've got a, graduate, a functioning graduate repayment scheme and we've got a functioning apprenticeship levy. The question is how both of those can be improved. We don't need to go back to the drawing board. And I think the evidence from Richard, from Sandra, on the apprenticeship levy is that it's not reaching the group that was most important to be met, younger people having their first opportunity. I personally am a bit of a sceptic about whether we're ever going to see a surge in 16 to 18 year olds going into apprenticeships. I think for many, many employers who don't really look at recruiting until people are 18, so they probably need investment in pre-apprenticeship training and other qualifications such as BTEX, the defunding of which I think is a, is a great pity. Um, and for older workers, it's not a priority use of the levy. And for these very expensive courses like degree apprenticeships, use fees and loans. But if you imagine a focusing the apprenticeship levy on uh, 16 to 25-year-olds, expecting the bulk of it being 18 to 25-year-olds, that's a very powerful tool to use in the way Richard said. And then for the fees and loan system, 
you can recalibrate it. I've suggested, I've always envisaged you would have a kind of five-year review. You can look at what's happened to earnings. You can look at what's happening to the cost of education. You can set a different fee level, which is now too low. You can choose your uh, change your <coughs> repayment terms, if you wish, like the um, interest rate was changed or the repayment threshold. All those can be adjusted in the light of different legitimate political decisions. But the basic structure is there to be used and enables you to fund the growth of higher education out of graduates, from graduates' repayments. And to all the people who say, but we're stuck, we could never possibly increase fees. I always say to them, look, from my experience as a constituency MP, and I'm talking to my friends still in Parliament, how many graduates come to your surgery to complain about their graduate repayments? It is not a top 10 political issue. The system works. The level of graduate repayment is not so onerous that it has become a political constraint that means you can't put up fees, which of course the students don't pay up front. Um, and then remaining in my optimistic strand, I think the other really interesting evidence we've got today, when there are attempts to create conflict between people at different educational levels or doing vocational or more academic pathways, is the powerful research here, very much aligning with the arguments of people like Enrico Moretti in the US, that places that have got large numbers of graduates are also places where non-graduates earn more. These skills, sec these high important strategic sectors <coughs> are good for you, whatever your earnings. Now, we certainly need to do more to move people through, but this is not a zero-sum game. This, there is very powerful complementarity here. So the backdrop is one in which, with some political will, and acting on the extraordinarily wise advice in these three papers, you can actually move forward and do stuff about it. And that will be one of the themes of our economic inquiry report. Now, we've got, um, we've got another half hour or so, and I'm going to call up some questions. Um, and uh, before my screen has just gone blank, uh, before I call up the questions, um, I'm going to let's start by a couple of interventions around the floor while I get my Slido back. Uh, who would like to ask a question? Ah, right. We, I see. Let's take a couple of interventions here and do give your name and organisation, David. Um, yeah, David Hughes from Association of Colleges. Great reports, and there's loads that, um, to like in here. It's a bit like Christmas has come early in some ways. <laughs> uh, um, so thank you. And lots of things that um, we would massively agree with. I think I wanted to just point out one thing I think that is missing, which is, um, is always a bit naughty, isn't it? But I think there's a really big issue, as well as demand-led funding for FE, which, which I absolutely agree with. Um, there's a big issue about maintenance. So if you're at 18 and you've got a level three, you can go to, into HE, you can get your maintenance supported. Your family background, therefore, is less important. Maintenance probably needs to go up, but it's still quite a big incentive. If you haven't got a level three at age 18, you probably end up doing three or four years to get there, but you're really disincentivized because you can't afford to live. And if you look at the cost of living crisis, it's a massive problem for lower income households. So I'd really, really ask you to take a look at the maintenance issues. Just two other really quick points. Um, the Newsom report came out at the same time as the Robbins report. Um, <laughs> and it was about the forgotten 50%. That was 60 years ago. We still haven't cracked it. So you know, we really must do it, mustn't we? And it's a really fascinating report to look at. The language has shifted. But it really talks about 
and moving the participation age up to 16. Of course, it's now at 18. I think the age is wrong. I think it should be staged. You know, your point, Richard, about level three should be where we're pushing people to as a minimum leaving position. But you would have to do something about student maintenance and poverty um, to do that. And just on apprenticeships, finally, um, w as well as using the, the lit fee loan um, system for HE apprenticeships, we should use study programmes for 16 to 18-year-olds. There's no reason why 16-year-olds should have to try and find an employer with a levy to pay for their education when they've got a statutory right for edu education up to the age of 18. It's just another one of those anomalies that gets in the way. So I'd be interested in thoughts on those. Yeah, I'm going to collect a second intervention from the floor thing. Thank you very much. Over here, so we've, we've clocked that. Important points about maintenance costs uh, in particular. Yeah. Thank you. Helen Carrasso, University of Oxford. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. Lots of really important things said that not enough people, not enough people seem to um, agree with or, or ever listen to. But I wanted to ask a couple of questions about funding. And one was, uh, Richard, you talked about the hopelessness of getting employers to um, pay. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to unpick that a bit and say, um, I agree with you about you know, mobility between employers, but what about sector bodies, um, you know, industry yeah. sector bodies as a way of getting employers to contribute? And, and also to ask a bit about, um, Gu, you talked about the individual learning account. To what extent would that be different from the, the lifelong learning entitlement <laughs> that's coming in? And I mean, does that address what you see as a need there? Or are there gaps, and how would you like to see it change? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go through the panel, but no, you're not obliged to answer uh, every question. But Richard, do you want to particularly pick up on maintenance and also Newsom? Was Robin was it done as a parallel exercise? Tell us a bit. This is also an oral history unit. Tell us a little bit about that. that the, whether these were parallel exercises 60 years ago? I think there was no connection between them. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my memory. But, but um, I mean, on maintenance, uh, certainly I can see an, a powerful argument for extending loans to people studying <coughs> beyond 18 outside b below levels four and five. D quite difficult to argue against it. Um, but uh, it would require a whole, uh, uh, obviously, big uh, administrative issues. There, but uh, yeah, we should get on with thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, on on um, the uh, sector bodies, I mean, we had sector bodies funding this um, up till about, I think it was about 1980, wasn't it? And I remember Sigmund Price, who was the expert on this at the National Institute, um, telling me that, that it was a racket. Um, that when you, ha when you have um, a a employers c sort of controlling, controlling the money, uh, it gets diverted to funding things that are in service training that they should be paying for themselves, and it stops serving the interests of moving young people forward into a position of skill which is in the interests of the collective uh, universe of, of, of employers and, 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 uh, and, of course, young people. So I wasn't, I have to say, enthusiastic when the apprenticeship levy was introduced. And I think <laughs> that's been pretty much borne out. I mean, it is extraordinary that after it came, the number of apprenticeships plummeted. 
And uh, this is partly because there was an attempt to raise standards and so on. Um, but it's not an encouraging story what happened with the apprenticeship levy and, as David said, with the diversion of funds to in-service training rather than uh, the interests of young people. So I wouldn't put too much faith on sector bodies as a funding mechanism, if that's what you were talking about. I think it's got to be uh, the, the stage. Now, then you mentioned individual learning accounts. And I, my, my heart sinks whenever I hear this phrase uttered. I mean, it was a complete disaster um, when it was introduced by the Labour government. Um, it's incredibly difficult to police, uh, to prevent abuse. Um, but it's, it's based on a, a really completely wrong idea. I mean, it's, it's this idea that... Well, I put, I put the right idea. The right idea is to create a system where young people can see what the system is and they just progress through it. Um, they, they don't have to pick and choose their way with hundred, hundreds of choices between every, every different kind of jam. They, they can see the system and there are standard ways forward. Um, in, individual learning accounts sort of relies on... Um, if, if it, if, if, if it's to work, um, the individual charting their own course where our university students are not required to. I mean, they know they want to go to a university. They have to pick which university and pick, pick which subject. But uh, and the, 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 the whole thing is a system which they can understand. Nobody can understand the system for the other 50% right. of the moment. There isn't one. Right. Sandra, you've got... Uh, there's, a lot, there's a very interesting policy dilemma here the grants or loans dilemma. And you have individual learning accounts is one of the ideas in your paper. Do you want to comment particularly on that issue? Yeah, they are absolutely not the same as the learning loan entitlement. That the learning loan entitlement is for mm. proper higher tertiary education. Um, it's, it's not going to be able, you're not going to be able to use it for everything. It's not, not a, a way to facilitate continuous professional development. Individual learning accounts are completely different. Um, they are supposed to facilitate short-term learning prospects. They're supposed to help incentivise individual continuous professional development, which is something different, and we, we should, really shouldn't think about them in the same way at all. Um, now, there are serious implementation issues, a very bad reputation, as, as Richard echoed here, because of what happened in the past. Um, but they are in place in, in other places. They have, they were, they're in place in Singapore and France uh, at the moment. Um, they have been used um, success, successfully elsewhere. Um, and we argued that really there, we should be experimenting with this to try and do, we need to, we need to help individuals who are in the workforce, who have their education, even their tertiary education, continuously update their skills. The more technical the skills, the more that's needed. Um, so this is a way to facilitate that. Now it's not entirely uh, through the government, uh, the learning, uh, uh, learning uh, loan entitlement is, 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 is heavily subsidised by uh, the taxpayer, um, but the individual learning accounts would be actually uh, ways, um, accounts where you could have employers contributing, individuals contributing, and some public subsidy as well. So, the, so they're a different concept, and we really, they really, really don't think they um, conflict with each other at all. And we're only advocating that policies like that should be tried, because we don't have very many policies um, in place for how you incentivise um, people. How, how do you help people? 
in the workforce to do their training. We don't have many things. We have the apprenticeship levy, but that's a very blunt instrument to deal with a whole load of issues. And I must say, um, from my experience, I've become more sympathetic to individual learning accounts. And um, I mean, there was, clearly was fraud and abuse. Uh, I personally think the system could have been tightened up to tackle that. I think the real reason why it lost out was the Treasury didn't like it because it was demand-driven. And you were trying to bring back the demand-driven open model. The individual learning account was an example of that. And the Treasury didn't like the fact that the, they had no direct supply control on costs. That was really why it lost out in Whitehall. Otherwise, I think the other problems could have been addressed. And the second observation I'd make, drawing again from my own experience, is that when Vince and I extended loans at a higher level to mature learners, adult learners, we thought we were going to increase the amount of mature learning. And instead, it fell. And the reason it fell was that an 18-year-old facing a fork in the road in their life can see that going down the higher education route is, for many of them, uh, a good deal, the right thing to do, for lots of reasons. For a mature learner to take out a loan, maybe already in a job, not totally confident you're going to get promotion or a new career as a result of it, is a much bigger ask. So although I very much hope the lifelong loan entitlement works in the way that's intended, I think there is loan aversion amongst old people. And this is where the point I think Sandra's making. So that's why you need some judicious mixture of grants and loans, and we have pushed the use of loans to the limit. And there are circumstances where they work very well, and there are other circumstances where they don't appear to. And you need some, if you can't just rely on the apprenticeship level, you need some other grant mechanism. So I rather sympathise with Sandra's points on that. And look, I'm going to, I'm going to turn to my other two panellists in a moment, but, but we have also must give an opportunity to people online. And the question which has been up, um, upvoted the most is from Tom Schuler, um, <laughs> who says part of the problem is that employers do not adequately and visibly reward skills. What could be done about that? Um, and I'm also, whilst I'm going through the interventions from people um, participating, also a few some questions about the role of local authorities in skills development, have they got the capacity to do it? And then um, thirdly, um, some questions further, and I think one of the fascinating features of the, of the report on strategic sectors, some scepticism, do employers in the strategic sectors really need more workers at tertiary level? They're advertising for graduates, but is that serious or is this just um, uh, a signalling device rather than really needing qualifications at that level? Um, Gu, do you, want to, do you want to first comment on that set of issues around employers? Uh, you mean the last question? Or? Uh, and all three of them, if you've got anything more right. widely on employers as well. Uh, well, I mean, to answer Tom's question, I'm not sure what he means by uh, employers not rewarding skills and also read to the last question, because I mean, what we do see is that it's not that just the employers are just demanding uh, more uh, tertiary educated workers, they also seem to be paying them more based on the uh, information we see from the wage, from the wage data. And again, we have seen more people getting university degree, more educated people getting into the sectors, and still this wage premium has held up. So sure, they might, be, they might want to pay them more, but it, it seems to me that um, 
there's definitely like a premium uh, attached to this type of skills, and particularly so in the uh, strategic uh, sectors. So um, I think that that's what I think. Okay, Sandra, anything you want to add on that? I'm um, just people should remember what the wage premium means. It it, made, it it reflects the demand and supply issues. If it's high, it means the demand exceeds supply. That's what it means. So therefore, there's more demand than there is supply. That's why the premium is high. Yes, workers are demanding it. They are willing to pay people more. Um, otherwise, the premium would be lower. Right. Uh, Diana, do you want to yeah, you step in? And especially the, the edu sceptics think that the graduate premium has disappeared when the work, all three papers in their different way, show there still is a graduate premium. Absolutely. I was just going to come in on the on the last point on, on um, employers as well. I think we do need to differentiate what we mean by employers because it's very easy. I think what we mean here is private sector employers. When you look at the NHS, for example, public sector employers, which is powered by highly skilled graduates, nurses, doctors, midwives, they don't have as much control over their, their wage pre premium. So I think we need to be very careful when we start chastising employers for, for a start. As for the um, graduate wage, wage premium, I mean, again, I'm going to do a look at London. We're doing pretty well, actually. Um, graduate wages are actually higher here, again, than any other region. But going back to what David was saying earlier, he's just disappeared, um, let's not... Um, underestimate the cost of living in the capital. The gra graduates may earn more here, but actually when you take the high cost of living here, that graduate premium is diminished. So I think we need to put it in context of the cost of living and regional cost factors as well. Right, yeah. Richard. Um, I wanted to go back, if I could, to the individual learning account. Right, okay. <laughs> because, I mean, to, to, to make a, a foolproof system of that size, you have to have a set of recognised institutions. <clears throat> and once you've got a set of recognised institutions, why not fund the money, put the money directly through the institutions, which is however many they are, a few thousands, rather than through the students, where you're talking about half a million. I mean, the administrative cost of an individual learning account would be of a completely different order. And I also think it gets the wrong uh, idea going that it is not the job of the uh, of, of of government to build up institutions. They ha they have to somehow look after themselves, and the individuals are going to be the agents who create the institutions. We never had that attitude to universities. Why should we have it here in this sector? University sectors work well, and also, of course. Surely we don't want to throw the whole system up in the air yet again, which individual yep. learning accounts yep. would require. Um, but I, I think let's just press you on Tom Schiller's point because we've got the we, you've talked about <coughs> students and learners, and of course there's the institutions, the FE colleges, the universities, etc. Tom's question was about employers and do not adequately and visibly reward skills. Do you think that is an issue? Well, I mean the way to do that, if you want them to do it, of course. You have occupational licensing, and that's a way where that's the only thing you could do um, to, to to make that happen more. And I think we do we have benefited in Britain from a rather more flexible labour market. That is that is Richard, the great advocate of apprenticeships, warning us about. Well, let's face it, is the key feature of the German model. So many people don't, we must have a German apprenticeship system. They don't realise to what extent it depends on the licence to practice mm. and a completely different labour market. 
Right, let's, I'm going to, going to, uh, yes, I see there's an intervention here. We'll take an intervention, I think the gentleman here wants to make a point, and then I will blend it in with a couple from our online participants. But yes, and uh, so let's start here. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm Phil from the University of uh, Northampton, um, and I'd be interested in the panel's views on uh, Rishi Sunak's proposal to reform the A-level system and bring a broader base number of qualifications <coughs> and more of an emphasis on uh, vocational learning. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in your views on that one. That's very thank good. You. That ties in. There's a couple of questions from our online participants about the sort of earlier, the feeder stage, because the shocking wastefulness of our system at GCSEs or, or earlier. How does the panel think that schools can better prepare their students for the challenges of the changing world? Um, if school for under-16s isn't engaging them, if they're not enjoying it, they won't want to carry on on any form of training. So uh, let's think a little bit more about what the pre-18 the pre experience would be like. We're saying we want more people to stay on for level three. Um, what kind of level three? How do we... Um, encourage it. Gu, do you want to make some observations on that and then I'll come to Diana? Yeah, so I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that the curriculum, post-16 curriculum should be broader than it currently is. Uh, also, I mean, I come from Italy, so whenever I, I find sort of the narrowness, if you want, of like the A-level choice and uh, vocational, cho vocational courses choice, <coughs> that's uh, 16 quite sort of mystifying, if you want, put in the context of what all the other European countries seem to be doing. And including also the US. Um, so yeah, I think a broader curriculum might be, which is not necessarily having only more math in this curriculum. I think building a broader curriculum that better reflects the broader interests that students might have at the age of 16 might give an additional incentive for students to stay in, um, those students that are currently uh, not motivated to stay beyond age 16 or to just end up uh, taking like sort of random courses if you want, uh, <coughs> without ever having a clear idea what they want to do. I think that provide good incentives. I think that the idea, if we have, there's many students that I think don't see themselves going up the university path. So I think if we have a clear offer at level four and level five, something that students, other students sort of, students from the other 50% if you want, um, can look, can look up to. I think that could like provide additional motivation for students to engage more with the um, with the um, with education after the age of sixteen. Right. Um, so I think, yeah. That's Diana, do you want to pick up on this? And particular, just two, two further questions. One, one is um, one way of linking these more is for universities and FE colleges to form a single kind of institution, of which London South Bank is the most conspicuous current example. Your observations about how university FE links and whether um, that involves, as I presume it does, Lon London South Bank taking university, including within a college that has 16-year-olds. And the other is, <coughs> to what extent are universities themselves broadening the range of subjects that people can do? So you end up with a strange kind of hourglass education system where you do this very unusual narrowing down to three subjects for 16 to 18 and then broadening out again <coughs> at university, which, which seems to be where we're heading. But what's happening there? You're right. Change is happen happening. Um, just to take the broadening of the curriculum question first, um, 
you're right, I agree. Um, what better way to uh, be inspired by something if, it, if you've got the choice and you're presented and you can try it at school age. So that's, that's great. But let's not underestimate the change that that would require at the higher education level. You've just said it yourself, David. We have a highly specialised system <coughs> here. Um, I'm going to talk about England rather than the UK. Um, there's a reason we have three-year degrees, some of the quickest in the world, because we're specialised at the school age into A-level <coughs> Than, than beyond. So that will cause a massive upheaval in the way our universities work. But you're right, that change is happening with some special institutions like London South Bank. But I've been lucky enough to be privy to, to the creation of that technical college. It has been almost 10 years in the making. And it's not just the university and the technical college. It's a sixth form college. It's a school academy. It involves the whole ecosystem. And so what, what they've created in this like, special part of South London is a system that works. We can't just tweak one bit and expect the other bit to work on a national scale. I mean, that's taken 10 years in one little region of London. Um, so I think if we're going to roll this out, it's going to cause massive system change across the piece. So it's not do you think it job. could be done? Is it a model for the rest of the country? Well, let's see what happens at London South Park. <laughs> Richard? Um, I can't see why we can't just go over to the IB and be extremely simple. Um, everybody would know what, what was going on. But the attempt to unify this with the vocational uh, qualification system it would be a complete catastrophe. It would not be to the benefit of the vocational qualifications. The vocational qualifications uh, work okay. They have value in their own right to those people who take them. There's some assumption that the people who take vocational qualifications sort of feel that they're second rate. That's not true. They, they take them because they have value to them. And to, to, to then try and incorporate them with something where they are seen, as, they will be seen as inferior, will not be particularly uh, helpful. So I, I think we, we need to be clear what the problem is about parity or whatever that we want to achieve. What is wrong is not the, the qualification are, are somehow not integrated. What is wrong is that there is not access to those qualifications. Rationing, I want to just go on with the word. Rationing, rationing, rationing. Rationing is the problem facing the other 50%. Right. <laughs> just, can I just ask you... No, actually, I think Sandra, you intervene. <clears throat> Sandra, your comments. I, I just wanted to talk about um, the breadth of curriculum. I'm, I'm, fr I'm from Ireland. Everybody stays in school till they're 18. And, and we do the Leaving Certificate. And we have a university system, just like the UK three-year university degrees. I just don't buy that the university system in the UK can't cope with that. Um, and, and most European countries, it is three years uh, university degree too. So, you know, that, that's, that's just, in my opinion, not really acceptable to have a, such a, a, all these people staying to in, in, in school, are, they're, they're not really staying in college. They're, they're, doing a, they're, college, they're, doing, they're in college, but they're also doing a lot of part-time work as well. So, because people are not, actually doing the same number of um, in-class hours as they are in other countries either. So what we're doing in further education is not enough. We're not doing enough stuff. So there's scope to have breath, more breath, which we should definitely be doing. Uh, there is a cost associated with that. There's a cost associated with not doing that as well, uh, which is that we don't get the productivity that we're looking for in the future. 
Um, so I, I, I'm really a strong supporter of, of greater breadth. Now, how you organise that exactly, um, it, what exactly? I mean, some countries have, like, the Irish model, uh, which is sort of a bit more academic. Um, to what extent do you mix the vocational academic together? To what extent do you have a bit of choice after age 16? So you do different tracks, which is what some European countries do it. But even those European countries that seem on the face of it to be a bit narrow in terms of specialism aren't actually when you look into it. Because, for example, in Switzerland, which is quite specialised from quite early, they have a language and they have numeracy for every single type of apprenticeship. Um, so, you know, we should be thinking, uh, I mean, not, I, I accept that Richard's uh, issues, you know, it, it may be we shouldn't wholesale adopt the uh, particular models in other countries and we need to think about this vocational academic split. But the principle of having more breadth in the curriculum and more teaching hours seems to be a good one. Very powerful. And just if, if a minister were there, say it's odd that nobody's talked about T levels. Are T levels going to be part of the solution, or is defunding BTEX to get people onto T levels going to be part of the problem? Where, where are you on that debate? I, I think it's a part of the problem. I don't think you can defund something before something else comes into place. It's, it's very insecure as well. If you believe these T levels are, are attractive, you shouldn't need to defund other things to make them uh, people want to do them. But why would you do them if you don't know what you're going to do after them and if they're all so new and it hasn't been spelled out? I mean, that's the real problem. They're trying to implement something too fast. Interesting. And Richard, have you got any views on T-levels and other routes into apprenticeships such as BT? Yes, I, 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 I just thought T-levels were probably unnecessary um, and particularly shocking if it's leading to closing down of well-recognised and valued and esteemed qualifications. I mean, that is a total disaster. Well, we've had, we are getting to the end of what has been a fascinating um, exchange. We've had some real disagreements and disputes about what you can expect employers to do, about whether uh, individual learning accounts or some grant-based system like that can work. But equally, I think there is a very powerful recognition across this panel that there is so much more we can do and we have the mechanisms to do to promote a broader-based education, uh, to accept that for many people up to the uh, age of 18, they are currently being let down, not, like, not least by the enormous funding constraints facing for 16 to 18-year-olds, which is where I personally think the funding pressures are most acute. Um, we have got an apprenticeship levy, strong views about how it could be reformed and made more effective. We've also got a fees and loan system, and nobody has said that that system for funding higher education should be torn up and start again, but we can clearly need to do more about uh, uh, recalibrating it, including uh, putting up the fees so that students get a proper unit of resource behind their education. And in many ways, using that as a wider model for other routes into uh, education and training, where I think we have to give the the last word to Richard, after all, one of the people who worked on the original Robbins report saying if that was about ending rationing of places in higher education, which is when reform we try to follow through on removing number controls there, we should have a similar bold approach to apprenticeships. Thank you to all of our panellists and authors, and I hope you enjoy the three papers that Resolution has published today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.